Hello, my name's James Bagley. And I'm Lucy Chaw. And this is The World We Got This podcast from King's College London. Has the pandemic changed our cities forever? Does the rise of internet shopping mean the end of our high streets? And what part does imagination and emotion play in urban planning? These are just some of the questions we explore in today's episode with urban geographer and head of the Urban Futures Research Group here at King's, Professor Phil Hubbard. Phil talks to us about the effects of the pandemic and the subsequent lockdown on urban environments. He discusses why the pandemic has exacerbated existing inequalities in housing and in infrastructure, but also why the pandemic may present a unique opportunity to rethink how we use our urban space. As always, please do rate, review and subscribe. It helps us reach more people. So, in the week when we finally got to know when we'd all be meeting up again and seeing friends, I started by asking Phil how he's holding up. I guess I'm one of the lucky ones who can work from home. And actually, I guess with a kind of an urban geographer's kind of eye, there are things that are going on that keep me interested in terms of of the lockdown, in terms of the way that we're dealing with it. Because I've been kind of lucky enough to work at home, there's a kind of an ambivalence here. One of the things that I've lost through lockdown is a long commute to work. I live out uh, about 90 minutes from uh, London, as do many of my colleagues as well, because of the unaffordability of, of the capital. And I don't miss that commute. And it makes me kind of start to think about how we got to this stage where so many people, both more affluent and less affluent, have to commute in and how world cities like London have kind of expanded in such a way as we now face this kind of extraordinary kind of urban sprawl and, and, and dependency of the provinces on the capital. So there's kind of ambivalence there because I've I've lost that and I I don't miss that particularly 90 minutes on cold mornings, getting on trains, overcrowded trains that are very often late. But on the other hand, what I do miss, of course, is I miss London. And it isn't just that I miss my colleagues at work and the face-to-face. It's something broader than that. It's kind of an almost indefinable thing, kind of the beingness of London, the the buzz and the idea that there's something going on there that I kind of missing. And I know that other people are, are kind of missing that and they find it hard to articulate that. So it often comes out, yes, I'm missing work. I'm, I'm, I'm missing my colleagues. You know, I'm missing that, you know, those little things. But it, it's, it's something broader and, and indefinable. The idea of being in London and just being part of that kind of the, the urban drama, I guess, that unfolds before you every day. And I think I am missing that. Yeah, it's, I guess, for most of us, it's been uh, a deeply unusual time. For urban geographers, it's like the biggest experiment or research project you could ever plan. <laughs> You've kind of got this opportunity to see the world in a way that, or under circumstances that you could never have imagined, I suppose. Yeah, that's right. And it's kind of disenforced experiment in a new form of, of living, of where face to face is no longer the norm, where spaces that were normally dense are now sparsely occupied. You know, so it's a kind of a really interesting kind of inversion. But in terms of it being a kind of an insight into the future or an experiment into how we might live, it doesn't seem to be a particularly successful one. You know, I think the negatives outweigh the positives in terms of the social costs of isolation, the loss of face-to-face and, you know, the trade-offs there. I mean, we can talk about those later, but in terms of what people think they're gaining through you know, new forms of working, actually, in most cases, are not compensated for in terms of quality of life or well-being improvements in the wider sense. Yeah, so I mean, I guess I wanted to start by 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 asking just how unique a moment in urban development this is. Has there ever been a time where the way in which we operate with the urban environment, the way in which which we interact with it, the way in which we work, has changed so rapidly and so suddenly? 
Yeah, I think commentators are a little bit torn on this, and 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 some people are kind of setting this up as some sort of kind of grand reset of the scale that we've never seen before. But I don't think that's quite true. And I think in a way it's quite foolish to suggest that, particularly if we think about instances of what we might call herbicide, the real death of cities, where we're not just talking about the effects of a pandemic in in depopulation terms, but we're talking about a destruction of the built fabric of cities as well. So one can think about World War II, obviously as a particular moment that required not just a new mode of living over the duration of the war, but also necessitated a mass rebuilding after the war. And I, I don't think we're quite there in terms of you know, comparing what's going on at the moment with the kind of the, the rebuilding of World War II, but there might be something shifting a little bit in terms of the mindset of people in suggesting that actually, when we come out of lockdown, we need our cities to be different. There seems to be a social consensus that something needs to be done to improve our cities because people have had their eyes opened, I think, to a variety of things that are going on in cities whose impacts and legacies have been, I think, more harshly and, and clearly shown in lockdown than they were than they were before COVID. And in terms of different groups, I mean, has there been a big kind of divergence in how the pandemics affected particular groups in society? Yeah, we we did one thing, which was to commission a thousand household segment of YouGov's London Omnibus survey. And we did that back in April 2020, about a month into the first lockdown. And we found around 70% of the sample of who are working age were working at home. And that's a figure well in excess of the national figure. And that suggests that people in London were employed in jobs that were more conducive to remote and the home working. But one of the things we were interested in is whether people living in particular types of home were finding lockdown easier or harder. And the results weren't particularly unsurprising. Firstly, those who have worked at home before were relatively used to it and found that transition quite easy. Um, But one of the more interesting findings was those that are living in detached homes in London are about four times more likely to be very satisfied than homeworking than those living in flats or apartments in purpose-built blocks. 64% of those living in properties with four rooms or fewer reported being very dissatisfied, as opposed to 35% of those living in properties with five or more rooms. So basically there, we've got the very clear finding that people who tend to be trying to work at home, particularly in a flat that only has a single living space, are, are very dissatisfied. And the type of things we were hearing from people was, Yep, lockdown has been okay for us because we don't have the commute, but we can sit around working in our pyjamas. You know, got a few people telling us that they like the freedom and the flexibility of working at home. But then we heard people who are living in smaller homes saying, I have to sit working in bed. I've got backache. Um, My partner is always intruding. My kids are making noise in the background. I can't get a Wi-Fi signal. You know, I have to go out into the hallway to work. You know, people coming up with all these kind of little horror stories, sending us pictures of, how they'd set up their ironing board as a kind of a workstation, that type of stuff. And it's that that I think might lead to longer term changes in the kind of the geography of our cities. So I also was involved in a piece of work for IKEA, where they sampled 38,000 people in 38 nations globally for their uh, living at home survey in 2020. And young people from 16 to 24 were half as likely as those elder than 65 to say that their home meets their needs. So we're also seeing here that younger people who tend to be more prone to living in smaller homes are less happy with lockdown and their home during lockdown than older people. And 50% of people in that global survey, 38,000 households, 50% of people said they want to move further 
from their place of work to obtain more space. Space for exercise, a garden, but also a space to study or work. These were all important things that were being said. So I do think this kind of differential experience of lockdown is going to drive some longer trends whereby those who can afford it are going to seek homes further from the centre of our cities, basically because they want more space to live. I mean, I was actually watching the new Netflix documentary, Fran Lebowitz, and talking about New York in the 1970s. And she was kind of yearning for that New York and and those urban environments that were perhaps not as what we would consider traditionally successful. But I suppose in, in watching that, and it's been very popular, people have been watching it on Netflix, it does make you think that cities do go through these cycles and it is part of the natural kind of history of cities that major events affect the way in which they're shaped and, and, and how we use them. Yeah, of course. I mean, New York in the early 1970s was, was broke. It was bankrupt as a city and that provided a possibility for all sorts of things to happen. All sorts of people had to make their own lives in the kind of almost the ruins of a, a kind of deindustrialized New York. But out of that, a new New York was born and, and certain things were lost and therefore people like Leibovitz will look back on it with a great degree of ambivalence. And, and so in that sense, I think that people can see, yeah, there is boom and slump and actually that cities are incredibly resilient. I don't think anybody is suggesting that the course of kind of urbanisation is shifting fundamentally, that urban processes are, are going to stop and there's going to be a fundamental shift. But I think most urbanists would disagree with the type of thing that Boris Johnson said a few days ago in February 2021. Uh, He basically said, you know, post-lockdown, our great cities will bounce back along with the rest of the economy. I I don't think it's quite that simple. I don't think things will bounce back in, in, at least in the UK and cities in the UK, in quite the same way. But nor do I think it's a fundamental reset. I think some things will change. And I think we need to think critically about what those should be. And should we see that? I mean, you talked about bouncing back there, but bouncing back to what, I guess, is the question and whether cities, you mentioned whether cities were working beforehand. Do you think that actually the pandemic has simply highlighted existing issues and challenges, particularly around housing? And in doing so, has it presented an opportunity to to kind of rethink how we might plan our cities and urban environments? Yeah, my take on this is really that, you know, when we think about COVID, it doesn't provide this great reset, but nor is it just a kind of momentary blip. I think what it's done is it's accelerated a number of urban processes that were already present that we already knew about. So, for example, we think about the the impact of online retail over the last 40 years or so. You know, people in the UK were already doing a very large share of their shopping online. Lockdown has increased that massively. So, you know, before lockdown, about 20% of all retail was conducted online. Into lockdown, it was about 35% in the first lockdown, actually went up in the second and third lockdown. And will it go back to that kind of 20% level? No, it's probably going to end up at something like 40%, yeah, or nearly half of retailing is going to shift to online after this pandemic. So I think those trends were already in motion. But COVID has really kind of accelerated them, exacerbated that kind of rush. Um, Equally, that kind of um, the idea of people leaving cities like London, taking advantage of online technologies to work at home. I do think, for example, we're already seeing a kind of a, a, a kind of exodus of the more wealthy from London towards spaces that were about 70 to 90 minutes from the capital. But I think we're going to see those numbers rapidly increasing. 
And all the evidence that we've seen over 2020 was that people who live in London, who have housing wealth, realise that now they can kind of trade down, make some money out of their housing wealth and live further from London, but travelling once or twice a week. And what they're doing there is kind of you know, thinking about trade-offs there between you know, proximity to spaces of work, but also what they might gain from moving further than London. Normally, that's a bigger home with a garden and possibly uh, proximity to countryside, which has become increasingly valued through the lockdown. I mean, you, you mentioned there people, people choosing to move. Obviously, there are huge discrepancies in terms of uh, values between uh, house values and property values, asset values between the southeast and and the rest of the country. I mean, one of one of the interesting things is, in a sense, could these moves to new technologies and ability to work from home facilitate, as you say, people moving out of the capital? Could it be a kind of chance to level up in the sense of kind of bringing some of that capital, those people out of the uh, out of the centres that have perhaps been particularly successful? and creating room for perhaps young professionals who are starting out to live in those urban environments at a a more affordable rate? Yeah, I think there are certainly possibilities there. But this kind of this ebb and flow of of capital through the housing market, I think is something where if we start thinking about levelling up or levelling down, that's kind of buying into a particular discourse of the market. You know, saying everything will find its level in the market. And actually, I think most urban uh, thinkers tend to think that, you know, what's going on now is that we're looking at a process whereby housing is so thoroughly incorporated within wider circuits of capital accumulation that are now international and global, that really, you know, that type of discourse in that kind of levelling up or the the closing up of the north-south divide is too simplistic in some ways. And what we might be looking at here is basically COVID being used as an opportunity by developers to make more money. So the financialization of housing becoming, in a way, deeper and more expansive than before. So in some ways, I'm a little bit pessimistic about that kind of idea about, you know, this will, everything will equal up and everything will find its level. One of the, the things that I think we are particularly mindful of is the idea that there's been a very rapid decline in, in, in footfall at the centre of the biggest cities. London, certainly, Manchester, Birmingham, Glasgow in the UK, and, and similar things going on in continental Europe and elsewhere. And a lot of that suggests that the vitality and the vibrancy of retail and city centres is really going to plummet. We're seeing vacancy rates increasing very rapidly. In the City of London, they've gone up. They um, tripled in 2020. What we're looking at is not just closure of shops, department stores, we've heard a lot about that, but also, of course, hospitality, pubs, coffee shops and restaurants. And there are a lot of vacant units out there. You know, being positive, then that creates a lot of opportunities for creative things to happen. It creates a lot of opportunities for affordable housing at the centre of London. So we could be looking at here, rather than, you know, the working poor commuting in from the outskirts of London and pockets of affordable housing in the southeast having long commutes, they might be able to live at the centre of London. But in a kind of a more pessimistic sense, I'm a little bit worried that what might be thrown up in those kind of sites is is substandard housing that in relative terms is incredibly unaffordable. And what we might be looking at there is simply, you know, landlords and developers thinking about how they can make more money out of that parcel of land. That's what COVID is really providing the opportunity. That's the reset it's provided for them is to rethink their strategy and think about how they can make more money. It's all about rent, really, at the end of the day. Yeah, you mentioned there about 
housing and in particular in city centre environments and its link to perhaps the removal of retail or the end of retail in, in on a large scale in, in city centres or even in town centres. One of the things that the government has talked a lot about is making it easier to turn former retail and perhaps even former office space into housing. Is there a risk, as you say, that that could create a kind of two-tier market that while values and property prices for those owning homes in particular or kind of high quality housing will kind of deviate from a kind of sub-market where you've got poorly regulated or kind of poorly built former retail space used for those that serve the economy in city centres and urban environments? Yeah, I think that's certainly a, a danger. I think the kind of the real dystopian kind of visions of the future would suggest, you know, you're going to have rather than the kind of the suburbanisation of poverty that has been evident in the 21st century, you're going to see an inversion of that, whereby increasingly you've got a vertical form of urbanism in city centres with people living in incredibly small kind of micro-housing, kind of coffin flats, which have been knocked up on former retail sites and office spaces that have become incredibly devalued very quickly. And what type of infrastructures for living will those communities, those populations be provided for? What kind of... Um, community spaces? What type of green spaces will they be provided for? How will they forge a sense of belonging community? You know, and that's the real kind of anxiety there that we might just be looking at the kind of a, a very rapid development of substandard housing, which appears on the surface affordable because it's cheap, but per square foot is not that cheap. And in terms of quality, is very substandard in terms of what it offers, in terms of fulfilling basic housing needs, but also those kind of other needs that people have from housing in terms of providing a kind of a sense of community and belonging as well. I mean, we, we've talked a bit about, about the financial implications, I guess, and some of the ways in which this is being driven by or not being driven by the market. One of the things I wanted to ask you about was the imagining of the city or, or at least kind of visions of, of what we think about as, uh, as the urban environment. When you walk through London at the moment, for example, you know, it, it's striking that you realise that actually parts of London are defined still to this day by the work that takes place there. So you walk through the city of London and it, it feels changed because there aren't bankers filling the cramped pubs around the city of London or whether you move through Bloomsbury and the kind of restaurants that, that normally fill those spaces. So it kind of changes the emotional way in which you interact with the city. Should we see this as a key component of this topic? So understanding that the way in which we think about the city and the way in which we emotionally interact with it can actually affect the planning infrastructure and the ways in which we should think about housing and things like that. Yeah, I think you're raising some interesting points there about urban imaginarism. Actually, one of those things that you're saying there about the way that the city or any city is kind of divided up into different kind of functional zones is something that people are kind of beginning to react against, I think. I mean, one of the big kind of new kind of urban blueprints that is being thrown out there is this French idea of the 15-minute city, which is very much a kind of against that kind of rigid zoning, which in many ways guided late 20th century modern urban planning. Look at the New Towns programme in the UK, for example, the way that those communities were structured around living areas and working areas and educational areas. It was all very kind of segregated. And in that sense, that kind of lays the ground for, okay, when one of those things fails or stops, then you've got a dead kind of zone. Whereas the 15-minute city idea is much more about that kind of uh, polyfunctional use, the idea that within a local area, 
you've got everything you need, that there's vitality and a vibrancy and so on and so forth. I, I don't know to the extent to which that kind of 15-minute city idea is operational in, in somewhere like the UK. I'm not sure the extent to which it kind of offers a kind of a middle-class utopian kind of view of cities, which kind of might work in some gentrified neighbourhoods where there are high numbers of people who are you know, keen on cycling and there are well-maintained systems of micro-mobility and so on. But I'm not sure how it will work on a citywide scale. So in many ways, I think going back to the point you're raising there about urban imaginaries, I think that I think it's worth kind of raising that kind of dystopian kind of imagery about a city centre that's that's dominated by kind of a housing for the poor and for the working poor. And actually, where most of those working poor are involved in the gig economy, the delivery services, the restaurant services, uh, the Uber drivers, the stuff that we've come to rely on in lockdown, because in many ways, living at the centre of cities is absolutely where those populations should be anyway. They should be able to spread out and radiate from those kind of spaces. But what do we do if we turn our city centres into these kind of living hubs for the working poor? I, I think that raises some real questions about, you know, the future of our cities, particularly in the context of a world city like London that so many people value and come to, not just because it's kind of its buzz, but it's kind of its cultural reputation, its heritage values. The idea that it's this interesting set of distinctive urban villages and different spaces of education, of, of industry, of work, spaces of memory and so on. How much does the politics, green politics, play into this and thinking about the environment and how we link any renewable of the city to a kind of plan for decarbonisation, but also the ways in which people can gain access to green space and, and, le- and leisure space, I guess? Yeah, I guess one of the things that we need to kind of flag up as being a really kind of a a positive thing in a sense that's come out of lockdown is that kind of rediscovery of the local. So if we look at things like Google Analytics data that tell us about the kind of the level of mobility that's gone on in lockdown, if you look at somewhere like the area where Kings is located in Westminster or the City of London, you look at the data there, footfall, the amount of people in town who are there for work, for leisure or for shopping decreases with lockdown massively straight away, 95% reduction. And that's a kind of uniform trend around the country for most towns and cities. But then we come out of lockdown, London stays low, central London, the city of London, Westminster stays low. But then you start to look around the periphery, you start to look at the outer boroughs and you notice that by the summer, they've not just bounced back, they've gone above the level pre-lockdown. So people clearly aren't going into city centres anymore for work, but they're not going in there either for leisure or they're not going there for shopping. Now, those things are beginning to reopen again, but people aren't going back to them because they've discovered that a lot of that stuff is there on their doorstep. So there's a kind of rediscovery of the local. And equally, you look across the country, it's also small towns that recover and bounce back much quicker than the big cities. So retailing is, is really is suffering in the city centres. But if you look at some towns, indeed, that have not done particularly well, and I could reel off names like Burnley, Doncaster, Rotherham, uh, Chatham in the southeast, places that, you know, in, in the last 20 years have experienced a lot of retail vacancy. The footfall has been incredibly high over the post-COVID lockdown uh, in those months. So that kind of suggests there's been a rediscovery of the local. But I guess the real issue there is, you know, okay, that might be great in terms of people traveling less, less carbon transport, more people wanting to cycle or walk to local centers. The negative in all of that is, I guess, that it might fuel further gentrification. So the evidence seems to suggest, for example, Londoners who are moving out, 
that kind of exodus of the kind of the London middle classes that I talked about earlier, where are they going to? And they're tending to gravitate towards small market towns in the southeast and some in the north even, you know, Todmond and Hebden Bridge, these type of kind of like honeypot places. And that's encouraging kind of a gentrification of the local. So although you might have people moving to these kind of places or valuing the local or investing in kind of local green schemes, that very activity might be involved in, in a kind of a gentrification that pushes out the less wealthy. So kind of always wary about kind of green gentrification or kind of eco-gentrification that might be accompanying this. So thinking forward to our post-lockdown lives and thinking if there are any kind of mayors, councillors listening to this, to, to go back to and build on an earlier question, do you think it does present an opportunity to really engage with some of the topics your group, uh, the Urban Futures Group at King's looks at? You know, is it a time for this to be really engaged with seriously? So for policymakers, councillors, MPs to really engage with the ideas around urban renewal or, or some of the ideas you discuss in your research, is this the moment to do that? Oh, absolutely. I think it has to be an opportunity that needs to be seized. I mean, what we've seen in the last uh, 20 years, really, is this kind of a triumph of kind of financialization in our cities, whereby particular forms of global capital have come in and have often dictated the future of cities. Local authorities have kind of, in a sense, have been a little bit powerless to, to fight that. They've made sites available for development. But then what happens on those sites tends to be much more dictated by the rhythms and imperatives of this global capital, be it retail capital, investment capital, or developer capital. So I think we've got an opportunity here to kind of just say, hang on, what, what has that led us to? What type of city are we faced with? And as we begin to see kind of opportunities, we begin to see vacancies, we begin to see spaces opening up. I think it's kind of incumbent now on local authorities to think about, well, what can we do with that space? How can we provide better? And I think there are you know, a number of obvious opportunities out there, even in the short term, that need to be seized. So, for example... The decline of retail in city centres, I mean, it's absolutely palpable at the moment. I mean, walk around any British city, obviously, at the moment. We've got empty car parks, multi-storey car parks, not being used for anything. Um, And think about that more widely. How often are the the top storey of a car park? How often is it used? Three hours on a Saturday morning? I mean, again, what can you do with those sites? How can you repurpose those type of places Um, for children's play, for example? something that's very much in the news at the moment in terms of you know what the ch- children are losing by not having school playtimes and playgrounds and you know how can we create new play spaces in our cities you know, where can those play spaces be you could turn the top story of every multi-story car park in the country into a kind of a street play arena you know for kids now it probably won't happen for various economic reasons but there are examples around the world where people have seized those kind of spaces and said look Let's think about the right to the city. Let's think about the social use of property. And yet, let's use those unused spaces better. A similar thing there is what's going to happen to all these empty department stores. You know, some local authorities are beginning to compulsory purchase them and they're beginning to think about what they can do with them. And, you know, what do we what can we think about putting in them? You know, performance spaces, community hubs. What we need to think about there is maybe, you know, the future of the city centre, if people aren't going to go into town centres, to buy clothes because they're buying those all online and there are no clothes shops left in city centres. Why are they going there? And presumably it's because they want social and cultural connection with other people. They want some sort of experience. So there I think, well, why don't we look at things like communal dining halls? Why don't we think about the possibilities of forms of connective retail that bring people together? 
Um, I volunteer in a, a cooperative bookshop in Southampton. And, you know, I see people coming in there and I see that the, the work that that bookshop does in the community. And I think, OK, there's, there's things that can work. There are models here of community and communal ownership that mean people have got a stake in this form of retailing. The bookshop I work in, it has uh, homeless shelters upstairs. It sells green products. It takes um, donations from local supermarkets of out-of-date food, which it then sells on, donating their profits to the food bank. And people get involved, and there's a community space in there. So it's not just a bookshop. It's a form of connected retail. And likewise, I've seen other forms of kind of connected retail that are often run by kind of communities and enthusiasts that seem to bring people together much better than multiple chain stores. I've done research on on micro-pubs, for example, as a space that brings people together. You know, it's a kind of cure for loneliness, the epidemic of loneliness that we often hear about in relation to the elderly. People still want to go into city centres to experience a form of social connection. So we need to seize the opportunity in that respect to use some of these shops to kind of provide a new kind of communal hubs, a new form of connective retailing, a new form of consumption that isn't necessarily just about buying things. It is striking that some of the most successful big ideas in relation to urban space and, and how we use it have been have not been commercially driven, whether it's, you know, you think back to the, the parks and the creation of parks under the Victorian period or social housing after the after the war. You know, these were these were things that left left a lasting impact. They still they're still present in our in our urban environments and and often much loved. Um, and perhaps that's something that we can take for this this post-pandemic period. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think looking back at you know, the legacy of, of great Queen Parks that we have in many cities, I think it's kind of wrong to view that as kind of a purely kind of a philanthropic gesture. I mean, those parks mm. were provided to ensure that working populations were, were fit and well to provide that kind of space for, for recreation, to provide kind of airspace and light that was seen as vital for the health of the population. So they were designed with a particular kind of industrial capitalist uh, goal in mind. So they weren't completely kind of benevolent inventions, but I don't see why we can't now look at what's happened during lockdown and see that we need to think again about those, you know, providing those opportunities for a kind of an urban commons that can be used by different populations. There's been so much work done on the kind of the detrimental impacts of lockdown, not just COVID, but the lockdown on people's physical and mental health and showing how it's distributed unequally across different populations. Some really nice work by the charity Mind on mental health showed that mental health problems are three times higher amongst BAME black and minority ethnic populations in Britain than they are amongst other people. So there's something going on there, which I believe is to do with the urban conditions within which many black and minority ethnic people are living. It's not just that they've been often in the type of jobs that has put them on the front line that's created anxiety and vulnerability. It's the fact that they live in areas of the city where they don't have access to quality green space or they live in type of housing where they haven't got communal areas that they live in housing perhaps where they're forced to share with other people, very scant resources. So I think there's something that needs to be done. And that goes back, I think, to my kind of nightmare scenario of people living in micro apartments in city centres where they don't have any communal space beyond kind of commercial gym spaces that in themselves might provide a very kind of limited range of bodily sensations and are clearly are very commercial as well. So I think we need to think about how, you know, we, when we build again, we need to focus on affordability, clearly. That's important in terms of the housing crisis in the UK and much of the urban West. 
But it's not just about building affordable homes. It's about building decent, affordable homes. And decent homes are homes which will provide people with not just space for themselves to live and work and combine that within the, the four walls of their home, but also belong to a wider community that provides them with those opportunities for rest and recreation. Because once you suck out and you close down the pubs, the cinemas, the restaurants, and people look around their cities, I think a lot of people are kind of surprised as to how limited opportunities that they have are to go out and have fun and to work off energy, whether it's individually as part of a social group. So perhaps putting health, well-being, and even joy at the heart of urban planning might be might be the the way to go. I think so. I think I think there are ways in, in when we start to think about healthy housing, and that might kind of lead us down an avenue that gets us a bit preoccupied with ideas of kind of germophobic cities and public health. And I think it's 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 wider than that in terms of centering the body. I think when we think about the future city, I mean. It's going to start with the human body, really, and thinking about the, the broader kind of capacities and energies of, of people and the fact that we don't want to just be safe and healthy in that kind of narrow sense. We want to live our lives and have the opportunity to go out into cities that fulfill our bodily needs for excitement, for sensation, a sense of risk and danger sometimes as well. And I, just, I think from a personal perspective, you know, I've, I've had to turn my back on London for a year because of lockdown, but I've been forced to kind of re-engage with the local. And then I look at my local area, which I live on the outskirts of a provincial city, and I look at a map and there's all these green spaces. And then I go to these green spaces and I can't get to them because they're university sports pitches or they're leisure facilities or a golf course and they're all private. And there is no urban commons there. So I think we need to think about that. I think we need to open up a kind of a, a conversation about you know, common space because most of these sites, you know, the golf course wasn't being used. Why couldn't I walk across it? Why can't I go and co-ops local green space for particular activities? Why can't I cycle through this land? And I think there's a debate about all of that. But the wider debate is about, you know, do our cities really acknowledge the broad range of, of uses and demands that their residents have got? And I'm not sure we've, we, we're quite there in terms of cities providing that kind of rich range of of leisure uses. Very often it's commercial leisure that's privileged and we kind of forget about the things that haven't got commercial value. Well, lots to think about. And I think certainly everyone in London and at King's is is looking forward to those small pleasures of the city environment, be it the great pubs around the Strand Building or the the fantastic restaurants and, and those things that we perhaps took for granted. I'll never take for granted that rush of trying to catch the last tube after some, some midweek uh, <laughs> dinner or, or drinks with friends. <laughs> yeah, it's those small I, things yeah. we can miss, but... So it's those things, and I think it's just that, the kind of, the things that you don't have to pay for, just those quiet moments where you know, everything kind of falls into place. And that, that I, I, I miss my walk across Waterloo Bridge every morning, just kind of looking at the spectacle of the city, yeah, and, and, and not thinking critically necessarily about what's going on there in terms of capitalism and reproduction of value and financialization, but just kind of taking a kind of a, a moment to just enjoy the kind of the view of a great city. And I, I want that back, but I also want cities to work better for a wider range of people so they can find those type of moments, yeah. Professor Phil Hubbard, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. You've been listening to The World We Got This podcast from Global Affairs at King's College London. This podcast was produced by James Bagley and Lucy Wilman with editing from Rachel Waugh.